Have you wondered about living elsewhere after you retire? Well, we have almost daily. As you know, it's not an overnight decision. Hi, this is Gil and Jean of Retire There, a podcast about places to consider living in during your retirement. We started this show for selfish reasons. We will be retiring in the next few years, but we're not sure where. Then a light bulb went off in Jean's head. He asked, "What are others doing? With so many baby boomers retiring, there must be many relocating. Let's connect with them and pick their brains." But first, a little background about us. I'm Asian, born in Brazil, and raised in Brooklyn. I'm an engineer turned attorney and practicing higher ed law at a college, and I love working with students, faculty, and staff. And now, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> I'm not Asian. Born and raised in Long Island, New York, a place I've always wanted to leave. I'm a law librarian working in a court who loves his job. We've lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, New York, for many years, and have been thinking about our future home. So we will be speaking to folks from around the world who have moved to venues of their dreams and more. And we will share their intimate secrets. Whoa! <laughs> Just kidding. We will offer information you may not find anywhere else, though. So stay tuned. Bonjour. In today's episode, we will be speaking with Mike Duffy, who retired to Paris, France. Yes, it's our second retire abroad show. Gene, aren't you excited? I'm really excited. <laughs> okay. I love France. <laughs> Me too. Mike Duffy was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His educational background includes a BA from LaSalle University in Philadelphia, an MBA from the Wharton School at Penn, a JD from UC Berkeley, an emeritus professor. Mike held a 35-year career in higher education, where he taught accounting, finance, and business economics. Highlights of Mike's career include serving as professor and dean at the University of San Francisco School of Management. Lecturer at the Haas School of Business, UC Berkeley, Associate Senior Vice President and Vice Dean at the University of Southern California Leventhal School of Accounting and Marshall School of Business in Los Angeles. This is unbelievable. <laughs> I'm still going. Faculty member at Temple University School of Business, instructor in accounting and associate director, then director undergraduate business program, and finally program director at Duke Corporate Education in Durham, North Carolina. I wouldn't say finally. I think we may have left some things out, but those were the highlights. Okay. So Mike also has a fascinating professional background outside of higher ed. And I'd like to note one thing that stood out for me was his contribution to the Graduate Management Admissions Council, the folks responsible for the GMAT or GMAT, where he worked on the planning and oversight of changing from paper-based international admission tests to computer-generated electronic testing. Wow, that must have been quite an interesting project. Mike also volunteered in meal preparation and service for formerly homeless people, the AIDS Service Organization, and now in Perry, he's volunteering time for a program called the American Library in Paris Culture Picks. 
at the American Library in Paris, where he has reviewed dozens of Paris art exhibitions for the library's website and created displays of materials for members to borrow to learn more. Mike notes that this has been one of his major activities in retirement that's completely unrelated to his long career in university business schools and fundraising, and he is really enjoying it. Okay, on that note, Mike, take it away. How did you decide to move abroad? And of course, you chose the best place. Well, I did. I think I chose the best place for me. And I think I wanted to live abroad beginning when I was about 15 years old. And I always thought I would either go to school abroad or live and work abroad. And somehow I never got around to it until I retired. And when I retired, I um, didn't know at the time I retired, I had heart disease and I had uh, coronary bypass surgery six months after I retired. And boy, I felt great after the surgery. and was re-energized. And so I really, I sold almost everything I own, all my furniture, I got rid of my clothes, my books. And I came to France with three suitcases and a backpack. Wow. Where did did you live? Oh, I lived, the last uh, eight years, I lived and worked in the San Francisco Bay Area. Six of those years in San Francisco and one or two in Berkeley. I had lived in California for about 35 years. So I had lived in Northern California and Southern California during my career. But I chose uh, to come not with a lot of planning, which I have to admit was uh, like most of my life. Uh, I switched jobs a number of times based on someone coming to me and saying, would you be interested in working here? And so I never had a grand plan for my career. And I have to admit, I did not have a grand plan for my retirement. So I moved to France thinking I'll try it for a year. Although the fact that I sold everything and got rid of my furniture, I think made it unlikely that I was heading right back to California. Yeah. And I got to tell you, that's, that's planning, getting rid of all that stuff. I'm surprised you sold, got rid of all your clothes. That's interesting. (laughs) Just about everything. And uh, anyway, I moved here again with very little planning. I took a one month intensive French course. It was, uh, you know, eight hours a day, seven days a week kind of thing in southern France. And then I, I moved to Paris where I had wanted to live. I love cities. I like living in cities. I like what cities have to offer. I like not having a car, sort of hard to admit after I lived many years in Los Angeles, but I really prefer not to have to drive places. So in the freeways. Uh, yes, the freeways. <laughs> no freeways. Mm-hmm. Oh, there, right. are free, there are freeways here. I, of course, mm-hmm. since I don't have a car, don't go on them. <laughs> uh, I wanted a city. I wanted a city that is a very walkable, which Paris is. I wanted a city with very good public transit, and Paris has bus system and a subway system that's very good. Uh, France has a very good train system that gets you around the country. So it had uh, those appeals to me. I also was looking for a very rich cultural life for my enjoyment in retirement. And Paris, of course, has some of the greatest museums, ballet, opera, 
historic sites in the world. So it, it met a lot of uh, criteria I might have. The other two places I would like to live in retirement, I would like to live in New York City and I would like to live in London. And the three, I think, have much in common. Uh, good transit, walkability, good cultural life. So I chose Paris as the beginning. And uh, at the moment, it looks like I'm here for the long haul. But uh, <laughs> since I didn't plan on coming and staying exactly, I don't know if I'll stay forever. But it's it's been a good, uh, I've been here close to six years now. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, that's a sign. Yeah, that's a sign. <laughs> I came, I thought I would come for one year, and I wasn't sure I would stay beyond that. I did not know how I would adjust to living permanently somewhere, uh, particularly outside the U.S. And I really didn't have any facility in the language. Uh, and so I was concerned, would I make the adjustment? And after about six months, I thought I should stay three years. So I really got the rhythm of the city. And then after about two years, I decided I should stay five and I'm still here. <laughs> so uh, it, it evolved. And so for me, that was a that was perfectly fine way to be in retirement. I, uh, yeah, I could evolve. I could uh, go with the flow of it. And that's what I've done. Okay. Did you buy a place or did you rent? Do you rent? I'm renting. Uh, when I first moved here, of course, since I didn't think I might stay longer than a year, I rented and I'm still in the same place I rented the first year. Wow. Um, where I live is in a very convenient neighborhood. Uh, it's very easy to get around. So I've just stayed uh, in the same place. Okay. So what uh, arrondissement are you in? I'm in the 15th arrondissement oh. and I'm I'm really close I would say you know five blocks at most from the Eiffel Tower <laughs> wow. for people who know Paris. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's interesting in Manhattan since COVID hit rental prices have gone down dramatically has has the same thing happened to Paris? Uh not dramatically. There is some decline but it does not seem dramatic yet. One of my favorite stories is a story a article in the paper I read about, it must have been about 20 years ago, where a 45-year-old gentleman, he was looking for a place. And apparently in Paris, sometimes people make deals with older individuals. And in this case, he made a deal with a 80-year-old woman that he would give her a certain amount of money for her place and she could live there until she passed. The problem is she lived to be over 100 and she outlived him. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, those uh, by if if you want to buy in Paris, those deals exist. There are entire real estate agencies that that's the uh, the kind of transaction they facilitate. And you pay the person an upfront lump sum called a bouquet. Actually, you give them a bouquet, but then in most cases, you also give them a monthly amount, so you continue to make payments. And you also assume responsibility for payments if the building needs repair and so on. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, you can put your money on red or black at the roulette wheel. You know, it, it's <laughs> you're, you're engaging in a sort of a life insurance gamble. Uh, as you point out, the person could live a long time. Wow. But those wow. deals are ve are common here. That's a very common thing. Here. Wow. Yeah, because that's because the real estate, it's, it's so hard to get an apartment, right? Yeah. Uh, it takes people, they estimate it takes you a year to find an apartment to buy. 
Wow. Uh, I know some people would have taken less, but uh, it's it's uh, it's a market that is very uh, difficult, I would say, in terms of buying, in terms of, first of all, understanding how the market works. It, the real estate agencies uh, and the real estate market is not like residential real estate in the U.S. There is not a multi-list where you can go to one real estate agent who can then talk to you and deal for on your behalf across the whole city. It just doesn't work like that. So you really have to decide where you want to live and then find a real estate person in that neighborhood. Uh, the other way to do it is you can buy, pay an intermediary. I have a friend who did that recently and he paid a person whose job really is to help Americans uh, navigate living in France. Mm -hmm. And among the services that person offers is helping people find an apartment. And he paid her to do that. Uh, you That is a method people use. Yeah. We see on uh, this program, House Hunters International on television, where it seems so simple. You know, you go there and you say, I want to live there. And the show just takes you to a couple of places in a few days. And next thing you know, they're purchasing. But that, no, that's just rentals. I think the one, one in France. Are they just rentals? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I stand corrected, but it just seems so simple. And I think uh, if you have the money, you would think that wouldn't be an issue. But uh, I guess you have to have serious money to be able to just walk into a place and, and make that buy. If I were just moving abroad, I would rent too. It's a risky time. Well, I think some people who have traveled a lot or maybe traveled or work in a particular city might be ready to buy immediately. But if you don't know the place and don't know how you're going to adjust, buying's a, an awfully big uh, investment to undertake without being having at least some certainty yeah. that you want to stay. Yeah. Mike, can you talk to us about healthcare and the medical resources? Well, France is reputed to have one of the best medical care systems in the world, and I think that's probably true. For someone who comes from the United States to France to live, it's a little complicated. The first thing is, I was only vaguely aware of what this meant, but Medicare does not cover you if you live outside the U.S. If you travel outside the U.S. on vacation and say, break your leg, uh, yes, you can pay for your medical care. And when you get back home in the U.S., submit the bills and you may get reimbursed is what Medicare tells you. But if you live abroad, as I do, on a permanent basis, Medicare just doesn't cover you anymore uh, for anything. It's just, oh, it's, wow. uh, it's gone, in a sense. So, so you need uh, to think about how do you handle that. To stay in France beyond 90 days, you need to get uh, the, a visa. It's not called the visa in France, but that's what we would call it. And it's a, a process which is... Uh, paperwork intensive and bureaucratic. And you must start the process in the U.S. and get it approved before you arrive if you're going to stay beyond 90 days. So, and it's, you have to go on a website and figure it out. Uh, I would caution you that there's lots of wrong information on the web. If you're thinking of coming to France, you have to access the information at the French consulate that covers the area you live in in the U.S., 
mm-hmm. not any French consulate, the one you, that covers your home state, because uh, they're, they're slightly different. Uh, and, it, and it is a, a demanding in the sense of paperwork. You have to have birth certificates. And if you're married, marriage certificates, uh, birth certificates for your children. You have to prove where you live in the U.S. You're supposed to prove you have a place that you're moving to in France. Mm. For some people, it's just a hotel. <laughs> um, you have to prove you have enough money to live on when you're here. And you must prove you have health insurance ah. to cover you. So most people uh, get a, a, a travel insurance policy. They're readily available. They range the, in price. Let's just say the range is tremendous. Mm. You can get really bare bones coverage or you can get very, very high-end coverage. So it requires a bit of research to decide what you're comfortable with. Um, and then once you get to France, uh, it's again, there's a lot of, I think, bad advice on the web. If you're living here and not leaving, I think you're really supposed to pay taxes or f- let's say you're supposed to file tax returns. Uh, you may not pay any taxes because of a tax treaty with the United States. Uh, your tax, you pay it in the U.S. Uh, is a credit against any tax you might owe in France. So for most people, they end up owing no more tax in France because of how much they paid in the United States. Hmm. If you want to get in the French healthcare system, which I am now in, okay. you have to file a tax return and, and your premium for your insurance is based on the tax you pay in France. So it's a percentage of that tax. I don't. I pay no tax in France, so my French health insurance is really covered by the taxes I pay in the U.S. It's uh, there's a lot of reciprocity with the uh, these tax treaties. So it's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. But some people don't want to pay tax in France or even file tax returns. I don't own any real property in the U.S. right now, and the French system taxes people who live and work in. France or citizens of France on real property they own anywhere in the world. Oh. If it over, if it's over a certain value, wow. some people I know don't want to go near that. So they, <laughs> those people have to stay on their travel insurance as long as they stay here. Wow. Whereas I have moved completely into the French healthcare system. Okay. So, and it's, it's easy to use. Uh, it covers a lot. It really, I, because I have this coronary artery disease, I mentioned Mm -hmm. anything that's related to my coronary artery disease is 100% covered. So I get prescriptions, doctor visits, cardiologists, everything's a hundred percent covered. Wow. So Um, financially it all worked out for you. Yeah, it works. Now with the French health insurance, like all middle class and people and, and people who have good jobs. I do have a supplemental insurance policy that would pay any deductibles and things like that. So, and I've had other issues that I've gone for sonograms and uh, things like that. And I, my health insurance, in addition to the French health system, my private health insurance covers uh, almost all of it. Okay. So do you have to be a French citizen to sign up for the French healthcare system? No, no, I'm not a French citizen. Oh, okay. No, no. Gotcha. I'm an American citizen. Actually, 
I might note at this point, since uh, uh, I I live in France and I'm a uh, French on the French system, I pay taxes and I get the health care. Mm-hmm. And I do that because I live here and I follow all the rules. I've got the visa every year for five years. I filed the tax returns. And French people believe health care is a, a human right. And that if you're here in France, you should be able to have access to it. So I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one thing I might note that this changes the game uh, and it could change the game for some of the people who listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Since I lived here, I have become, in addition to being an American citizen, I now have an Irish passport, which I was eligible for because one of my grandmothers was born in Ireland. That Irish passport now allows me to live here or anywhere else in the European Union for as long as I want. So I no longer have to get a visa every year. Wow. I don't have to go through any of the, it, the way it had been every year. I had to do all this paperwork to renew my visa. Okay. After okay. five years, you can get a 10 year visa, which a number of people I know have done. But the wow. first five years, it's this uh, annual bureaucratic exercise. <laughs> um, Interesting. Uh, the, but now that I have the Irish passport, I don't have to do that anymore. That was and so I smart. wonder if Brexit is going to um, oh, it's have any implications. Yeah, it has, right? not, for, not for me, because mm-hmm. I'm a citizen of Ireland, not the mm. United Kingdom. <laughs> but for people in the United Kingdom, it's already having, yeah, dif- creating difficulties, mm-hmm. and people honestly have no idea what it's going to mean, even yeah. within a year. Right. It's very, right. very confusing wow. to people. Right. I mean, there have been so many um, analyses over the years. And then when it finally hit, I just, uh, you know, I'm sitting here waiting and just bated breath. They had four years from when they voted on it till Mm -hmm. this past uh, December 31st. And as far as you can tell, there was almost no practical planning whatsoever about any issue. (laughs) I mean, that's really the truth. But they were adamant uh, as if there was serious planning. So, no, so there was no planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really uh, quite a, a mess for for citizens of the United Kingdom right now, yeah, or right. for citizens from European countries mm-hmm. who want to live and work in the United Kingdom. It's equally right. a mess. Oh, sure, sure. Right. But back to back to doctors. Do most of the doctors speak English? I go to a primary care physician who, in fact, is Irish, <laughs> and uh, he oh, speaks wow. a version of English like my grandmother did. <laughs> he has a network of uh, private doctors, as it were, uh, so uh, who are not necessarily employed by the French government's health system, all of whom speak English. So he will refer me uh, to, to healthcare providers of all sorts, uh, even for routine things. I've had a, I've been here long enough. I've had a colonoscopy. I've had I have some thyroid issue going on. I go to someone about my thyroid, you know, all of those people. Yes, he has a complete network where people speak English. But, you know, that's a really important question, Gene. I think it's a mistake for people to assume, as some Americans do, oh, in France now or in Europe, everyone speaks English. (laughs) Not everyone. (laughs) But that's just not true. Uh, First of all, people in shops, the people who work behind the counter in a retail store, 
the people who work behind the counter in a butcher shop or a bakery, who, by the way, you deal with if you live here, <laughs> uh, cab drivers, uh, people who have jobs that don't require a lot of higher education may not speak English at all. Mm -hmm. So while I go to doctors who speak English, sometimes the receptionist does not. Oh, that's a good point. So, you know, so it, it I, I think there is a, a common perception among some people that everyone speaks English now because they travel and they stay in hotels where the staff does probably speak English mm -hmm. and French and German. Uh, and they, they, they generalize from that. Uh, when you live here, lots of people speak English. That's absolutely true. But lots of people do not. Right. Uh, in, if you want to go to neighborhood restaurants, you really cannot expect that the waiters and waitresses speak English. Yeah, yeah. That was our experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you live here, you don't eat at uh, Maxime's every night, you know. <laughs> no? And, uh, <laughs> not even you? No, oh no! I, in fact, I eat at home on most nights. Ah. Um, so I eat at home uh, almost every night, even without COVID. Uh, and I, that's why I know the butcher. I know the people with the bakery counter. I know the green grocers. Nice. Uh, because I go shopping two or three times a week. Like most French apartments. Mine has a small refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not a Costco run where you go and get huge boxes of, of food for the month or the year. Here you buy a few days worth of food at a time. Yeah. Right. Which is healthier, yeah, you know, well, and you don't have to, like in California, go to Costco or well, any of those ridiculous. I haven't, I haven't stepped foot in Costco in probably <laughs> 10 years. Like... Yeah. No, but I not, but not I do fan, think anyway. it's a lot healthier to to eat this way. I mean, the Chinese are like this too. My mom would pick up um, from the grocers, you know, every day, and we'd have fresh food. Fresh food, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, do you do you cook French cuisine, or or what do you do? Uh, yes, I cook French cuisine. I cook American <laughs> cuisine. Uh, so it's interesting. That's a, a, an interesting question because. Another problem for people to adjust to here in terms of cooking is it's not always easy to find everything you're accustomed to in the United States, uh, particular brands of food or even particular ingredients that you think, oh, I'll just run to the grocery store and get, oh, for example, if you bake, I'll get vanilla extract. Well, no, you won't. <laughs> uh, you you have to search for things like vanilla extract, or you have to search for the kinds of baking chocolate you're used to if you're a baker. You have to search for all kinds of things that you think are just commonplace in terms of cooking. It is not commonplace here to find um, oh, oatmeal, uh, of the kind you would be used to in the U.S. if you eat oatmeal in the morning and you're used to just uh, throwing it in the microwave or in a pot on the stove, that is hard to find here. Oh, wow. uh, so so when I say I cook American, it's not exactly uh, how I would cook in the U.S. Oh, but but there, my neighborhood, like many neighborhoods in Paris and throughout France, has twice a week a big outdoor produce market where there are cheese vendors, fish, meat, 
uh, all kinds of fruit and vegetables based on the season. They're like huge farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not exactly farmer's markets because some of the stands are really green grocer stores. Right. You know, that's their business. They aren't farmers. Right. Some are, there are some, but the majority are, they move from market to market. Um, and so there's a easy access to very fresh produce, uh, easy access to meat and cheese. That's right. The but- I live in an apartment building where on the first floor, uh, there is both a butcher and a baker. Wow! Uh, in my in, in my building. Nice. Was that uh, by design? Was that by design? Uh, no, that wasn't by design. <laughs> and some days I look at the baker and think, I wish it were further away. Uh, okay. Wow! wow. I, I do want to. I'm curious. Have you made a lot of friends there? Um, I, I assume you now speak pretty fluent French, also. But uh, um, no. You know, well, there's, I have made some very good friends that I have. They really, uh, I would say mostly all of my friends are American expats who are retired in Paris. <laughs> oh, and that's typical because guess who has time to yeah. hang out during the day or go <laughs> to a museum or take a walk <laughs> or go to lunch yeah. uh, or take a little weekend trip somewhere. <laughs> it's all the other retirees. Mm-hmm. And all of whom also are looking for people to uh, socialize with because they've all moved here as retirees. And so most almost all of my friends are American. That's the first thing I would note. Mm-hmm. Um, the second and and there are very easy ways to meet Americans. There are all kinds of social groups and language classes and there are language uh learning groups that aren't classes. And uh, so there are lots of ways to meet people. Uh, What's hard to do is meet French people. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, if you move here for a job, you meet French people at work, and often you then learn to speak French more quickly. Mm -hmm. If you move here and you have children to go to school, you'll learn to speak French faster because you will deal with the school and they'll be learning French and they'll have friends who speak French. For re- for people like me, it is much harder to, first of all, get to know French people. Parisians are not friendly casually. Mm. And they find it amazing, for example, that Americans will tell you their names when they meet you. I, I used to go to a barber here and at one point, he was talking to a person who was cutting his hair before in front of me, and they were speaking some English, some French. And after that guy left, I said, ask the barber, who I at that point knew a bit, uh, if he was American. He said, no, he's a French person, but he lived in the U.S. But they were commenting to each other on some other American who had been in the barbershop who, who told them his name. Now, I had been getting my hair cut at this barber, let's say, at this point for two years. And and the barber said to me, well, look at us. We don't know each other well enough to know each other's names. (laughs) What? I was was taken aback. (laughs) I have to tell you, that was my next question, because we thought, you know, there's a stereotype we were reading in, what was it, photos or something about how to be prepared um, not to be offended if, if, People aren't warm and friendly to you. And it's true then. It is true. What they are not is casually friendly. 
even with other French people. I once had a French instructor and we were talking about socializing and someone in the little group said something about going, uh, having people in your home, like people, your colleagues from work. And the French teacher was horrified. He said, well, they're not my friends, (laughs) the people I work with. No, I wouldn't have them in my house. And what I would say, here's the other side of the coin though, especially with the small shops. The first time you go in, they're rather cold. The second and third time, they're much warmer. If now I've been going to this butcher and baker and other stores in my neighborhood for more than five years, they're very friendly. Mm-hmm. They, they're, and the ones who I've gotten to know, they think it's very funny, but I have told them my first name, which all, already is surprising because even r- old customers, they call very formally. Monsieur Dupont, you know, and things like that. Um, so I tell them my name's Mike. And in the butcher shop and at the dry cleaner, the people just laugh when they call me. Oh, they'll say, bonjour, Mike. And then they laugh. They think it is so funny that they call me. <laughs> that is um, so cute. <laughs> it, but it is true. I think the F- Parisians, I am not talking about anywhere outside of Paris. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everyone in France will tell you Paris, Paris is not like the rest of France. And uh, so I don't know what it would be like if you lived in a different city or small town. But in Paris, people are not f- casually friendly. They don't smile at you on the street uh, and, and casually say hello the way American people do. That's very that's different. The other thing that goes with that, though, Gil, is when you go in a shop here, there is absolutely expected formalities. You must say hello. You must say bonjour to the person behind the counter, and they will they say bonjour to you. And in America, I think about this. If you would go into, say, a bakery and you're next in line, the person might look up and say next, and you would say, I want a loaf of white bread slice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not here. The person behind the counter, instead of saying next, would say, monsieur, looking at me, monsieur, bonjour. Wow. And I must say bonjour. I must wow. say bonjour. And one of my brothers who has lived in France off and on tells a story of years ago, standing at a bakery counter and thinking he doesn't understand French or they don't understand his French. And he keeps telling them he wants some croissant or something. And the person just stands there. doesn't <laughs> move, and, and finally, he remembers and he says, oh, bonjour, madame. And as soon as he says, bonjour, madame, the person says, fine, what do you want? And gets them the croissant. But, and you must say goodbye when you're finished. When you're leaving the bakery, the butcher shop, you must say au revoir, or you might say uh, thank you. You might say that the butcher, if they know you as a regular customer, they might say, see you soon, a biento. Oh, they, wow. they, you know, uh, but there's a beginning formality and an ending formality. It seems absolutely a formula, and it is, but you must do it. Interesting. You just cannot start talking to someone without saying hello. And part of it has to do with the French notion of everyone's equal. You know, égalité is one of the values. Uh. And there was a time, of course, when people with status and money treated uh, working people badly. or And now it's totally unacceptable. 
And so I would tell you this funny story. A friend of mine was on a bus near where she lives in Paris. Mm-hmm. And the bus stops and it opens and a person coming on the, in French says something to the driver. And the driver says, no, 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 and shuts the door and pulls out. And the driver turns to my friend who speaks very good French and says to her, he wanted this bus route, but he wanted it going in the other direction. And he should have been on the other side of the street. But he didn't tell him that. And he says to my friend, you know, he didn't even say bonjour. <laughs> so because he didn't say bonjour, he wouldn't tell him. He wouldn't tell him to be on the other side of the street. Oh, my the spot. So mean. Yes, yeah, so but, but it's a good illustration of if it's expected that you interact with people in these ways. Another very nice thing, except if you're an American, it takes a while to understand this. If you're in line at, say, the butcher, and the person in front of you begins a little conversation with the butcher, not about the food and not about, but a little conversation. The butcher will never say, I'm in a, oh, I have a line. They will finish the conversation and then they will turn to you. And everyone who's Parisian knows that's how it works. And, but if you're an American, you want to tap your fingers and tap your foot (laughs) and you look at your watch and, (laughs) you know, but what I've learned and I think is efficiency the way Americans think of it, oh, my time and I'm in a hurry and wait on me. Why aren't you waiting on me instead of just gabbing there? Mm-hmm. Efficiency isn't the highest value in these kinds of stores and transactions. There is a human quality, even if they're not warm and friendly the first time they meet you. Right. There's this human quality that they will have this conversation in a human interaction with the customer uh, before they move to the next person in line. And, and that adds a level of humanity that might be lacking when all you care about is getting the most number of customers through the door. Interesting. That's hmm. serious culture shock. It's, it's also true in restaurants. And it, this might not be true in the smallest cafe or the cheapest cafe, but in a normal restaurant, when you go in for dinner, your, the table is yours for the entire evening. They do not expect to turn the table over oh, wow. unless they tell you in advance. Sometimes I've called a restaurant for a reservation and they've told me if I come the minute they open and promise to leave by a certain time, I can come. <laughs> but they have a reservation. But normally they, they, in, they would only book one. It doesn't matter if they open at 7.30. They might book a table at 8.30. But that table is that person who has reserved it for the whole evening. They would never hurry you to leave at the end of dinner. People sit a long time at the end of dinner drinking coffee and talking conversation. And it's, uh, it's, again, in restaurants, it strikes me, they don't care about turnover. Interesting. In the sense, in a U.S. restaurant, they will tell you how many covers <laughs> did they serve tonight. How, you know, yeah. and... Don't stand by your table. Yeah, yeah, and it does not happen here. And I have seen restaurants with empty tables turn people away because they were really busy enough. Wow. You know, we have enough people and the rhythm's okay. And if you if you see a restaurant say to someone who's just walked the door, do you have a reservation? And the person says no. 
they won't always get in, even if there's an empty table, because the restaurant has a rhythm and they won't take people who come very late because they're going to close and everyone, the staff goes home. They don't want the staff to work late. Right. They go home. So uh, it, it's uh, it's very different, I think, than what you expect in the U.S. in terms of those kinds of comm- what we think of as commercial transactions. Right. They don't think of quite the same way as we do. And that does take some getting used to. Yes, absolutely. Again, I think that's part of the culture shock. I mean, when you first moved there, you didn't, I'm sure you didn't know some of these. No, I really didn't know almost any of it, you know. Uh, And uh, I think in some ways I was fortunate. I have a brother and sister-in-law who, with their children, lived in Paris uh, around the year 2000 for a couple years and still have an apartment here and are here frequently. And so some things they told me, you know, uh, like this uh, saying bonjour at the bakery counter kind of stories. Uh, but much of it, you just have to learn. You just have to observe and learn and uh, uh, you get used to it. Yeah. And and as I said, you have to recognize that the humane quality of some of the interactions, you will not have humane interactions with waiters in, uh, and waitresses in restaurants. I don't believe, except if it's a Michelin three star, which costs quite a bit of money, I don't believe there's almost any restaurant in France that has enough staff in the front of the house, Mm. at least according to U.S. standards. Sure. So there might be a big dining room that has two people waiting on all the tables. And in the U.S., we think if we wave to the waiter running by, he he or she will stop and ask what we want. Not here. They Mm. might look at you. They (laughs) might not. Or they might turn and sort of scowl and say, I'm coming, I'm coming. Uh, But they keep going because they're not coming yet. It means I'm getting to you later. Right. Um, When they come to the table in many places, they'll just stand there and say, I'm listening. J'écoute, I'm listening. So, but they're harried. Those waiters Mm -hmm. and waitresses are harried. So that's, again, something you just have to learn that when you go to a restaurant, they might seat you, and it might take a while till they even bring you a menu. It'll take a while till the waiter actually comes to see what you want. It's just how the thing works, and you cannot change that. And if you get frustrated by it, oh, it's not a good place to be, I suppose. <laughs> how, how do the French tip? Between zero and, say, 5% would be normal. Wow. Um, maybe a little more in a very high-end restaurant. But I would say a French person tips between zero and 5%. And do you follow that rule while you're there? I do. I have some American friends who go to the zero end. I I, almost, I never go to the zero end. Wow. Uh, if, if you're in a restaurant where the staff works, their, full, their employees, they, of course, have the equivalent of Social Security and health care and all the things. Uh, they have, a, in effect, what we would think of as a full benefit package, but they are government mandated. It's not like the U.S. where the health insurance is what your employer decides to pay for. Here, everyone's in the same system. So, so there's a different expectation. If you're in a restaurant that's frequented by tourists, the wait staff has learned to think you're an American and you're going to overtip and they are delighted to see you because they expect you to give them more money than any French person ever would. 
But uh, if you day. go to just, again, a neighborhood restaurant, they are not expecting much in terms of a tip, no. And what about the, the tap water? Do you drink the tap water? Yes, I drink the tap water. The tap water in Paris is what in the U.S. we would call hard water. It has a lot of uh, calcium, I think it is, in it. So you have to, I mean, it, if you use a dishwasher, you have to put stuff in it to overcome the calcium or it uh, spots the glasses and stuff. But yes, I drink the, the water. French people in Paris believe that the Parisian water is very high quality. Can you talk about um, the opportunities available to explore hobbies and, and what are some of the favorite things that you do, uh, maybe pre-COVID, but all yeah, 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 all the same? Uh, my biggest activities on a normal basis are I walk a lot, and Paris is a great walking city. Uh, there's lots to look at. Uh, there are lots of parks. So I walk to several different parks and walk around the parks, as do lots of French people. Uh, the benches, there are benches. Uh, there's often uh, either food in the park or food nearby that people bring and sit on a bench and eat at lunchtime, eat a sandwich. Uh, it's one of the rare times French people will eat outside and like that. Um, Americans, you know, we might eat something walking down the street. The only thing a French person would eat walking down the street is the end of the baguette that they break off and chew on as uh, they leave the bakery. When I first moved here, now really five years ago or so, most places that sold coffee did not have to-go cups. It was unthinkable that someone would like buy a coffee and not stay and drink it. <laughs> and so to-go cups, when I first came, they're more common now, but they really weren't very common when I moved here. Uh, it's just not how, again, how French people eat and drink. But in a park at lunchtime, people buy sandwiches and stuff. At the bakeries all have prepared sandwiches and they sit in the park and eat. Uh, so I do that. I walk, I walk around the parks a lot. I go to a lot of museums. I have developed my interest in uh, uh, painting and uh, drawing, sculpture, prints, and Paris, a great city for museums. And I go, when everything's open, I go many times during a week to museums. For some special exhibitions, I go multiple times. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I would say that has helped me get accustomed to living in Paris and enjoy it is I almost immediately bought uh, memberships in uh, a bunch of museums. I would recommend it to anyone who moves anywhere, whether it's in the US or abroad, that one way to get involved is to buy one of these memberships. Then you just go more often. Sure. And you don't yeah. think, oh, it'll cost 10 bucks or something. It You paid once, you know? So I, now, since I like museums, I probably have memberships at eight or 10 museums. Uh, you don't have to go that uh, crazy, but... Uh, <laughs> It really makes a difference. Like I take a walk and sometimes I'm meeting someone and I'm early. I have gone in the Louvre for 10 minutes to look nice. at one painting or 20 minutes mm, so to walk nice. into one room wow. because I have to pass. It's easy. If you have to pass two, you don't have to wait in the long line with all the tourists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I recommend that. And I do that. Uh, the other thing I think almost every expat I know does extensively is travel within France. Mm -hmm. 
there it's Paris is a wonderful location for day trips. There are lots of trains that take you to very interesting little towns with beautiful cathedrals, small museums, different cuisine. And so that is uh, something I think most people who move to Paris will do a lot of and people should plan on. It's inexpensive. It's easy. Uh, and I've been to cities I didn't even know existed that have just amazing things to see. Amiens uh, has the maybe the greatest uh, Gothic cathedral in the northern part of France, and it's magnificently restored in the past couple years. Nice. Uh, so it's a great day trip. Uh, Angers, a great day trip that has 500-year-old tapestries and a museum of 20th century tapestries. Hmm. So a great nice. contrast and interest. So things like that, I think a lot of people pursue. So Maybe hobby is not the right word, but pastime or certainly enjoyable activity. Yeah. What, what about courses like, I don't know, pottery, ceramics, things like that? They're all over the place. I have not taken any of them. I, I know a woman who teaches uh, drawing, and she has regular classes. I see them in the, I see pottery and drawing and painting classes in the neighborhoods all mm. over the place. Nice. Uh, and, and of course, there are innumerable classes to learn French of all levels at all prices with all kinds of groups, formal schools, very casual, free things, things you pay for. There are lots of culture oriented classes too. I take I take an art history class uh, twice a week, uh, now virtually, and uh, it's it's taught in English. The the person who teaches it uh, has lived in the U.S., but he's European and he speaks perfect English. So he uh, he runs an art history class. Uh, he also leads uh, tours to exhibitions and around the city. I've done quite a bit of that, and there are many many such walking tours, historical tours, art tours, both in French and English. Uh, nice. And, and, and really more than you can imagine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I know that um, outside of Paris and some of these other cities, you can live for significantly less than you can live in, in Paris. Are there many expats who live in some of these cities? or? Yes, a, a few of them. There's probably a fair number, uh, Gene, in, in Nice. Uh, there's a city northwest of here called Rennes, R-E-N-N-E-S. It's always written up these days as a much less expensive alternative to Paris. I think increasingly Bordeaux has sold itself as a, it's a city that's gone through a lot of renewal. And I think Bordeaux sells itself as a good place to live. There's now a faster train to Bordeaux. So some cities that have very good train service to Paris are good alternatives for people. I th- thought about that for myself, but my decision is, my decision, frankly, is not to live in France. My decision is to live in Paris. <laughs> and if I didn't live in Paris, I would rather live in New York or London. Understood. I want to live in a big city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, I'll tell you this, the weather is not good in Paris. Year-round, really, it's not good. And I tell people this. You have to know you don't move to Paris for the weather. <laughs> no, no. If I wanted to stay in France and wanted better weather, I would move to Nice or somewhere at the southern end, you know, near the <laughs> Mediterranean. 
and which it Nice it would be, still be cheaper than Paris. Uh, it's I think there are lots of places in France you could live much uh, where you would have much less rent, for example, uh, much lower rent uh, than Paris. Paris is affordable, though. Uh, you know, if you live here, you learn how to live in your budget. You learn how to do grocery shopping. You learn how to cook at home. Or you learn to go out to eat the places are in, within your budget. Mm -hmm. When you're a tourist, you might splurge. Or you don't know any better. Right, yeah. Or you don't know enough language and you're intimidated to go into a neighborhood cafe where no one might speak English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you don't know how to read the menu. But once you live here, you know, for example, all places in Paris that serve ordinary food, I'm not talking about the highest end restaurants, they have a fixed price lunch for working people. Because if you work for a big company, the company must provide you lunch. Mm -hmm. And either they have to have a cafeteria, and if they don't, they give you something called restaurant coupons or restaurant <laughs> tickets. And it's worth a certain amount of money. And small cafes and restaurants have a lunch every day that is you can buy with that ticket. Wow. And so it, you can learn how to eat and you can learn which of those places have an inexpensive restaurant that proves you get what you pay for or ones that have an inexpensive lunch that's pretty good. Mm. And uh, so you can live here at a, I think, at a reasonable cost. So the key is really the the cost of the the cost of your living quarters, really. Housing, yeah, housing, housing is a, mm -hmm. housing is a, a big expense, but I pay less for my apartment than I would pay if I still lived in California. Well, Northern right. California well, is so expensive yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, compared yeah. to it's, another city, but yeah, Manhattan I, proper, I would say. Um, yeah, there's, there's a range. It depends on who in Paris live in single family homes. Very few people in Paris have big yards. And if you're coming from the United States and you think you're going to live in suburbia, then you're not going to live in Paris proper. You can live outside of Paris and have some of that. You can have a yard, you can have a house. But in Paris proper, no, almost everyone in Paris proper lives in an apartment. Mm -hmm. And many apartments are small. Many apartment buildings are old. Uh, almost no apartment in Paris has a big kitchen at all. Uh, that's very rare. Uh, so you have to adjust your expectations. If you want to live right in the city, you most likely are going to live in a small apartment that's smaller than what you lived in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and have things like a smaller kitchen. Um, most apartments in Paris don't have a washer and dryer. Mine has a washing machine, but no dryer. Mm. That's very common in Paris to have a washing machine, but no dryer. Um, a small refrigerator, almost no space to work in the kitchen. These are these are buildings are very old and have been chopped up and remodeled. Um, there are apartments that are brand new. There are there is new construction. And there are buildings where a single apartment has been completely remodeled inside. Wow. Uh, but they're less common and they're but more expensive because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the change. Um, so it is an adjustment. I think it is like, uh, you know, people who would expect if you move into Manhattan, unless you're super wealthy, you're not going to have the amount of space you had in the suburbs. 
Right. right? Sure. right. And Absolutely. I think if you move to a city like Paris, you have to have that expectation. Right. 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 I have a question about work. Are you permitted to work? I am permitted to work because I'm a citizen of the European Union and European Union citizens can live and work anywhere in the European Union. Before I got my Irish passport, I was not allowed to work. You could apply for a visa that allows you to work, but to get that, you pretty much have to have the job in advance. Mm. Uh You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's not uncommon. Countries don't want people just pouring in, right. looking for jobs and not sure, employed sure. and so on. So to get a visa that it allows you to work, I think you have to have a job in advance unless you're unless you have this status like I have, which would allow me to work. Uh, and let's just say if I wanted to. <laughs> right. At the moment, I have had no great urge to work, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, you've worked hard enough, yeah. you know? Yeah. One of the real pleasures of retirement in my mind is that uh, you don't have to have an alarm to get, you don't have to get up at any specific time in the morning. And while you might get up at the same time every day, not having to get up or having an alarm ring is very nice. Yes, absolutely. Yes. The other I, secret of retirement that I've sort of gotten over, but the first few years I shared the secret with many retirees is, you know, it's really nice that you can take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and many retiree people say that sort of sheepishly, but then they all admit that they do. It's it's just something that uh, you find that it's uh, it's okay to take a little nap. <laughs> yeah, I'm not retired, but I'm a proud napper. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I I have to say I'm not because when I do take a nap, it'll be at least two hours and oh, it kills me. So not yeah, I'm not a good, I, not I, a nap. I'm not capable. That's the problem. I do oh. the 20 minute nap. Oh, you power, can do that. Yeah, power nap. Yeah. The, and uh, it's, it's, if you fall asleep, it gets you through one sleep cycle. So that when you wake up, you're ready to wake up because you've been, you're done one sleep cycle. Wow. But have you always been able to do that or just? No, well, I always worked. So no, I never crawled under the desk and uh, (laughs) took a nap. Uh, No, because I know there are a lot of doctors that can take that power nap because they're limited in time. But I just, even if I have a free day, I have a tough time falling out. So how does one nap, you know? So anyway. Of your life, I don't know. Not everyone retires the same way, I suppose. <laughs> but the, the rhythm of your life can change, you know, a lot when yes, you retire. Yes, absolutely, uh, it really can. Yeah. And, so I have a, a final question, or one of, um, would you say Paris is elder friendly? You know, there's some cities that are more or less uh, they cater to the elderly. What? How would you describe it? Characterize it? I would say this, that there's a couple of surprises in that regard. One is, in an, I live in a residential neighborhood. There are a lot of very elderly people who live in my neighborhood. In my building, several of whom live alone. Uh, one of whom, though, has care people who come in uh, and stay with him at night, I know. Uh, but the other person, the other person who lives in the floor above me moved in this building, she told me, in 1949. Wow. I think she was a child, maybe. I don't know how old. Uh, and she's, I think she moved in here with her parents. Then she raised her own family here, and she still lives here. 
She lives alone and she goes, I see her. She takes her shopping cart to the market twice a week and she gets around fine. And I see on the street lots of elderly people walking, people with canes, with walkers holding on someone else's arm. Uh, and I would say the small businesses in the neighborhood are completely accommodating. Nice. Uh, I mean, you can be very slow and they let you take your time. That's nice. What isn't friendly is the the subway system. Mm-hmm. The subway system is old. Uh, much of it was built uh, around 1900. Uh, most of the stations, or at least many of the stations, do not have elevators or escalators, mm-hmm. or they have escalators that go part way. Uh, so the, the subway system is not at all friendly to people with any sort of mobility issue. It doesn't matter about age. Um, you see people, oh my gosh, women carrying uh, uh, baby carriages down these steep stairs to get in a metro. I mean, it's really unbelievable to me. But in general, uh, but the buses are very friendly to oh, older people. And good. so so uh, once you're at a certain point in terms of lack of mobility for any reason, you will take the bus. Mm-hmm. The buses take a little longer because they're in traffic. So I think when or, or they don't go as far as the subway might go, which is why you would see a woman carrying a, a baby and a carriage down the steps because it's going very far. Uh-huh. That is the metro is, is going very far. Uh, but I find uh, buses are, are fine. The cities, mo- many parts of the city are very flat. So it's easy to walk. Um, but in general, most Americans comment after they're here, here for a while, there is no Americans with Disabilities Act accommodation in France. <laughs> you, you can go to lots of places, restaurants. Many bars and restaurants, uh, like corner cafes and small restaurants, they only have a restroom in the basement, and they have no way to get that but a very steep and narrow stairway. Mm-hmm. So, 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 I mean, if 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 mobility is an issue for you, you have to judge mm-hmm. that sort right. of thing. Right. And and how's uh, clothes clothing shopping in in Paris? Clothes are. Uh, People in France, first of all, dress very, French people dress well. Uh, It's noticeable if you're out in the street, especially when people are going, coming from work, people dress well. But most French people buy their clothes at two different times a year. That is in mid-January and mid-July. There are huge sales in all clothing stores and department stores. And these sales that take place every year, twice a year, have progressive markdowns, 20%, then 50%, then 70%. And most people in Paris would buy almost all their clothes during the sales. They know the sales are coming. They know where they want to shop. They know what they're looking for. And you see people at the time of the sales with loads of bags they're coming from from the various clothing stores or department stores um you would think it's christmas they're just loaded down and so the uh, retail industry is so different than the cycles in the united states it uh, you know uh, you know that's an interesting point you know, what i would tell you is everything in france is regulated more than the us including uh, retail and so for example 
a store is not allowed to sell goods at less than they paid for them. So below cost, except during these two sales. They're the only time you can mark down below what you paid for the item. Otherwise, it's, it's against the law. Interesting. And so that kind of competition is is therefore limited by law. Uh, there are other things that you are we would find this strange in the US, but by regulation in every neighborhood in Paris, there's always a, every seven days a week, there's at least one bakery open. You can buy because you have to be able to buy fresh bread every day. Oh. It, French people think it's a right. Yes. And they think <laughs> you have a right. I mean, I've read this in the paper in small towns that where bakeries are going out of business. People complain to their elected officials that they have a right to buy baguettes every day fresh. <laughs> oh, that's so the, bakery, the bakery in the building I live in. They have fresh baguettes three times a day at first when they open at lunchtime and right before dinner. There wow. are warm baguettes coming out of the oh. oven. Wow. But in every neighborhood, their bakery, uh, there's at least one bakery open seven days a week. There's butchers open. Not every butcher, you know, no, no bakeries open all seven days. Mm-hmm. No right. butchers open all several days. But where I live, there's always a butcher shop open, seven, one of them in some part of the neighborhood every day, a baker every day. And those kinds of regulations are part of, you know, making life uh decent making life good uh, mm. uh so uh, so it's very different than what you expect in the u.s sure sure yeah, and yeah. you know what and on that note i think it makes sense that my husband loves bread he is a prudhomme right <laughs> yeah um and so he could live comfortably having three baguettes <laughs> a day and I- let me tell you he does sometimes and those, <laughs> those sandwiches in the bakeries are delicious. The, the pre-made yeah. sandwiches. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love it's the croissants myself, but I always know. get them heated up. <laughs> okay. The, the funny thing about the sandwiches in a bakery, this is another thing I still find odd. If you get a sandwich in a bakery, it might be, it might be ham and a piece of cheese and a little bit of lettuce, maybe, but it will have butter on the bread. Mm. And in the you because uh, because you don't eat a baguette without butter, do you? I mean, <laughs> and, so again, it's just a little thing that you notice as an American used to how you you would not expect to get a ham and cheese sandwich in the United States with butter, right? But here, here, if you get a baguette sandwich like that in the bakery, there will be butter on the bread. <laughs> it's a crime, but you walk it off. You know, you walk it off in Paris. Okay. <laughs> So um, any last words of um, wisdom well, you, for future retirees? You know, one thing you mentioned was, you know, I do this volunteer work at the American Library in Paris. It is a lending library. Mm-hmm. It is the largest English language lending library on the European continent. What? And nice. it is and it, it has extensive programming for kids, adolescents, adults. It has a fantastic speaker series, which now is all online because of the virus. And uh, I I do volunteer work there connected mostly to the fine arts. As you said, I, I've written really dozens and dozens of art reviews for the website. Um, and I, I help them with the collection of art books. Uh, Getting into an activity like that has made a huge difference 
for me in living in Paris. It, first of all, it gives me something to do, but it's I really do it at my schedule because mm. uh, I'm doing projects. So some volunteers like go every Wednesday morning and help them shelve books and so on. What I do is I do it when I want to, uh, which is suits me. Uh, but I've gotten to know the staff. I've gotten to know the other volunteers. I've gotten to know lots of people who come to the library for the speaker series. And it is real. It really is a wonderful way to be plugged into the community and to have an activity that's rewarding. And it's something that I would recommend to anyone moving anywhere mm -hmm. to think about activities, uh, volunteer activities, especially in my case, it is an activity that furthers my interest in the fine arts, which I'm really trying to develop now that I'm retired. But because of your background, which didn't indicate much of the fine arts or art, how did you become a reviewer of artwork? <laughs> I have spent my life recreating myself. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I always had some interest in the fine arts but nothing formal before. And here I have spent a lot of time going to museums, taking the art history classes, reading mm. a lot about the arts, drawing on my general background from before. And I was asked to take over some activity at the library, which was putting displays on for the members related to art exhibitions. Instead of just putting a little blurb that was copied from the museum, I decided I would only do it if I could write something. Oh. So I started I started writing about the exhibitions. That's so great. Uh, and that's what I do. That's so great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both for uh, asking me to talk with you. And uh, I would encourage people to consider retirement here. Even Eugene seemed to be interested in <laughs> retirement in Paris. So... <laughs> Oh, absolutely. We we do actually plan on living abroad maybe three months out of the year for a couple of years. At least that's what we're thinking right now. I know many people in Paris who are Americans who come for three month stints because 90 days, mm -hmm. you don't even need a visa. Right, right. And, and that's plenty to learn about the place. And know? there are some people who actually own a, an apartment here, but still only come 90 days at a time. Wow. And they and there are other people who rent the same place every year or rent a different place. But I, I that's one of the surprises for me in Paris is how many people go back and forth, even though they're retired and they're not working. They don't move here and stay here. They go back and forth quite a lot. Yeah. More than I expected. Yeah. And, and uh, do you go back to the U.S. often or no? Well, not with COVID. So no. I haven't been to the U.S. for 14 months, I suppose. Okay. When I first moved here, I went twice a year, mm -hmm. each year. Oh. And I could tell, though, the last time I went, I could tell I was done with going twice a year. <laughs> one of the, you know, one of the things I didn't mention, which might be interesting to people who think of retiring uh, to an interesting city like Paris is I'm amazed at how many members of my family, friends, and acquaintances come to Paris. Yes. Sure. And so... They don't uh, have to go back, yeah. So, I mean, there are, in some years, I have seen all of my siblings twice in the same year in Europe. Wow. So, all of a sudden, I have less incentive to go back to the U.S. Sure. Because I see a lot of family here. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of friends. You, right, right. 
a lot of people travel to Europe from the U.S., especially once they're retired. So if you retire here and have retired friends and family, you will see them. <laughs> you moved away and you thought you got away from them. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I, uh, it, it, one of the biggest surprises of retirement for me is how much time I've spent with my siblings. I never expected that because I grew up in Pennsylvania, but all of my only one of the five children my parents had stayed in Pittsburgh. So okay. all of us have moved away. And it never occurred to me that in retirement, I would see so much of my siblings. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And so it's been an unexpected pleasure. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Great. Okay. Okay. Mike, thank you so much yeah, for your you time. So much. We so appreciate oh, this. And yeah, it's been welcome. so educational. And, you were beyond and, great. And you were really wonderful. Yeah. I hope it's of interest to your. Uh, oh, absolutely. Tune in. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Okay. Take care. Okay, Talk soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. If you know of someone who relocated for retirement and wishes to share their story, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is gg at retirethere.com. Our website is retirethere.com. And you may follow us on Twitter at retirethere underscore. Don't leave out that underscore. And if you liked our show, please subscribe and rate it in Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. In the meantime, be well.